Well, I want to, uh, before I begin, just apologize for a slight theological error last week. I actually, uh, I said that Jesus said, oh my gosh. Um, I, saw, I saw rows of people shift when I said that. Um, I was off script at that point. I was, what we say is surfing. And uh, I, I do like to think that it hasn't been the worst thing I've said. Um, I, think, I think that may go to when I said that I was quoting C.S. Lewis and uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah, and I, I said that Aslan was a tiger. And uh, I had 20 people explain to me that's not true. And I wanted to say, all my defensive, I know that. It was a mistake. But we're going to move on from the theological era of last week, and we're going to move on because Matthew moves on. <clears throat> I want you to notice that there's going to be a shift in Matthew today. There's been a shift. It's over 15, 16, and 17, but the shift increases now. And you're going to see this move away. He's been doing a public and a powerful ministry. I mean, we have seen amazing things displaying his greatness and his glory. <clears throat> And it has increased, uh, it has been met with increased antagonism and opposition. It just, and it kind of culminated last week in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so we see this shift now move towards more of a, of a private instruction to the disciples, of preparing them for his death. In fact, you're going to see it in the very next week. He's going to say, in 1621, that he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and elders, and he is going to be uh, put to death. And he's going to be raised on the third day. But he's going to move increasingly to be preparing them for his departure. And in preparing them for his departure doesn't mean in any way that his ministry is going to stop. His redemptive ministry will continue, but it's going to continue through these apostles, through the church. And so he gives us some incredibly encouraging words over the nature of the church. Over the nature. Now listen, the church today has fallen on hard times. Some statistics say as many as 75% of people don't go regularly to church. The church has been seen kind of a bit like a dinosaur. We need something new in our day, something new in our time. Well, not so. I, I believe that Jesus is going to articulate beautifully the church that he is seeking to build. I pray it encourages you. I pray it challenges you in terms of how you may have viewed the church before. So if you will, look with me at Matthew 16. This passage, by the way, has some unbelievable pregnant language. It, it, it is very, very thick and deep. And so I really ask that you would hang with me here because some of these things being said, that upon you I'm going to build the church and the keys of heaven, what you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Some really tricky, tricky stuff here. So read with me in chapter 16, 13 to 20. Matthew records, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. I mean, there is so much great, great stuff in here. But we're going to look at it one piece at a time. The first thing we see when we look at the church that Jesus built, the first thing we find is that the church that Jesus built is going to identify Jesus correctly, that he is the Messiah from God, that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Look at as he queries his disciples. He says, who do people say that I am? So he's kind of getting a broader perspective. And there's obviously a real mixed bag over how they were perceiving Jesus. They said Elijah and and John the Baptist and Jeremiah and some other prophets. Now, let's just stop for a minute. That's a decent list of people. I mean, they, they really are. John the ba- if they're thinking he's John the Baptist, they're thinking something big because John the Baptist has been killed, and so he must be raised again. So this must be the resurrected John the Baptist. Or Elijah. Elijah didn't die. He went up in a whirlwind. So he, he never died. If, and he was supposed to come back before the Messiah. So they're thinking he might be Elijah or Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a great, a bold, a powerful prophet, but also sensitive to the things of God, known as the weeping prophet. Now, this is quite a collection of individuals. I mean, if someone were to say to me, Tom, you preach like Elijah, well, I, I would be surprised, but, but I would be complimented. And I would be thinking, wow, that's quite a group I'm being associated with. But not so for Jesus. Those fall far short of what he's come to declare. They do not see that he's the Messiah. They've missed the mark. They haven't seen it. And so he turns to his trusted friends and he says, but who do you say that I am? And that, that, the, the, the you is emphasized. He wants to know what they think. And so Peter, of course, first to be called as apostle, first to speak usually, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's, that's incredible. Do you know what this means? To say that you are the Christ? The Christ is uh, a, a translation from Greek. It would be equivalent to Messiah, a translation in Hebrew. He's the Messiah, the anointed one. What do we mean by that when he says you're the Christ? Well, here's what it means. It would mean that the individual, the anointed one from God, to deliver that all of Israel had been waiting for is Jesus. Now, remember, Simeon and Anna back in Luke chapter 2, they waited for years for the consolation of Israel. This is the one to deliver us. So the Messiah is the deliverer. All of Old Testament expectation was building progressively onto this Messiah that would come and save. Think about it for a minute. The promise of Genesis 3. So we've just wrecked the plan of God, kind of, in Genesis 3, and then he says that, a seed will come forth from the woman, crush the head of the serpent. That this individual will reverse the effects of sin. All the ugliness and brokenness that we have, this one's going to come and reverse it all. Would your hopes not be pinned to him? Or in Genesis 12, that this Messiah, this seed, this one, would be a blessing to all the nations, so all the world will look to this Messiah to come and bring about redemption. Wouldn't our hopes be pinned on him? Or, or in 2 Samuel 7, when God promised to David, he said, you're going to have a son, and this son's going to be a king, and he's going to be an eternal king with an eternal kingdom. So he's different than just a human king. He'll have an eternal kingdom. Wouldn't you be longing for that? And Peter's saying, this is what I think you are, Jesus. 
You are the crusher of sin. You are the blessing of the nations. You are the eternal king. Or Emmanuel, the promise in Isaiah 7, God with us. Or Isaiah 9, the wonderful counsel, prince of peace, mighty God, eternal father. The government's going to rest upon his shoulders. That means he's going to hold up a government of glory. You're the one. That's what he's saying. Can you imagine? He is all the promises of God. Yes. So when he says, I believe you're the Messiah, that's what I believe. That's what Peter's saying. But not just the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. Well, this is pretty big. He is the eternal son, which means he is divine. His divinity is clear. Think of Psalm 2, when the father hands to the son, this eternal son, you are my son, God says. Now, they had seen him as the Messiah before. They'd even called the son of God before. But I think for Peter, either this is the first time or a deepened sense of the two together. The eternal son is the Messiah we've been waiting for. I am thankful, and I think you'll be thankful with me, that these things just don't drop in. There's this progressive revelation. You know, we kind of grow in our understanding of God. Peter came to this by the grace of God. And he'll still learn more about the Savior after the resurrection. But I do appreciate the grace of God that he didn't understand things fully, as you're going to see in the next chapter or in the next few verses, when he tries to stop Jesus from dying. He doesn't understand things fully, but he does understand them truly. He truly confesses rightly, even though he doesn't understand the full picture. So, so this question, who do you say that I am? The church is to see Christ as the Messiah from God, Son of the living God. Now, everybody has an opinion, and if I were to individually interview you, I imagine I would have many opinions of Jesus. Some may be incorrect. Some may be incomplete. I mean, there are many incorrect views of Jesus. You know, you have great men, by the way, like Benjamin Franklin or um, Albert Einstein or Mahatma Gandhi. These are great men that are seen as having a measure of greatness in this world. And they would say he's a teacher. He's a good man. He's a moralist. He's an example for us. They see him with nice attributes that we may once said about us. But they don't speak truthfully about this Jesus Christ. Or, or you have some that look at Jesus incompletely, Muslims, or Jehovah Witnesses, or Mormons. They'll say he's a prophet, they'll attribute spiritual qualities to him, but they don't see him as the divine son that is the Messiah of the world. They don't see him that way. Error with Christ always seems to hang around a lack of understanding of the uniqueness of Christ. He is absolutely unique. There is no, we don't ever want to see Jesus as as an amped up human, a human to the 10th power. Oh, he's he's of a different order. I mean, he is the son of God, and yet he's man. He's the God man sent to deliver his own life to death to save us. Radically unique. He breaks all the paradigms. He breaks all the categories, all the boxes. He is radically unique. There is no one like him. He is not, he's not even a distant to anything you can imagine. It, we do the same thing with heaven. We think of it as golf courses and great weather and beaches. Our minds can't conceive the glory that God has prepared for us. Sometimes it's the same way with the, with the Lord. Now, I want 
to remind you, and I don't want this to sound harsh, but ignorance doesn't glorify God. And even when you hold, even when you hold a false view of Jesus sincerely, you may be very sincere, but it's still false. Sincerity doesn't overpower the error. We want to honor Christ just as we honor the Father. Jesus said this in John 5. Listen to what he says. He says, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That should show you his glory just in that. He says, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Do you see what this means? This means that when someone says, well, I believe in God, and, and they have some questions about Jesus, it doesn't work that way. He has been sent. All judgment has been given to him. So you, God has done that so that God desires you honor the Son like you honor the Father. That's not me saying it. That's God saying, I want you to honor my Son like you honor me. It's a triune God we worship. We have to honor the same. Now, th- th- this, so who do you say that he is? Do you believe this? I, I, I've quoted this to you probably 20 times over these 15 plus years, but I, I can't get better than C.S. Lewis's statement of mere Christianity in terms of the importance of the way that we view Jesus. He says this, he says, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God or he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. So I mean, it's incredible for us to be the church. You have to be Christ-centered. Now, for you here, if you're a Christian, and you can affirm, you say, yes, I believe he's the Messiah. I believe that he's the Son of God, that he is the strong one, able to save, that he's the holy one, able to please God, that he's the sacrificial one, able to deliver us from our sins, that he's the patient one, working with us, changing us from glory to glory. But saying that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, isn't simply repeating an orthodox formula. I know most, for example, in my family, most would affirm this, But the evidence of that being a reality in our lives is not there. In other words, you can affirm this, but by your life, is it evidenced? In other words, faith produces fruit. It leaves a wake of change. What would be the evidence for the Christian to know, yes, I really affirm that? It's easy to say, I cognitively believe in these truths. I don't, I don't imagine, but few of us in here might not say that. But is the evidence there? Well, let me give you some examples. Is there a, and, and Jonathan Edwards brought this up, this idea of growing affections, that if he really is, if all of God's plan is wrapped up, his whole redemption, everything we're hoping to deliver us from life and death, to be with him forever, it's a, if it's all centered on Christ himself, then by natural extension, I would think we'd love him. 
there'd be growing, deepening affections for him. We'd have a growing experience of Jesus. You know, it's like, so Edwards brings up this example about the nature of honey, right? So I I can tell you about the constituent parts of honey. It's yellow, it's sticky, it's sweet, bees make it. I can tell you about the elements of honey, but when you put the first spoonful in your mouth, it's a different experience. You taste it, you enjoy it. That's some of the evidence of truly believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that you have a deepening love for him, a deepening delight in the gospel. But there's other evidences for you to see in your life, or perhaps perhaps these are not in your life. And if these are not in your life, then we want to stop and rethink. A growing, for example, a growing love for God's word. That if God has done all this for me in Christ, I want to know what he says. I want to know what he thinks. I want to know the mind of God. Or a growing obedience to the word. It's not perfection, but when I cross the word and I'm convicted, I want to repent and begin walking by faith. Or growing convictions. You know, when you're not a Christian, I accepted a lot of behavior in my own life and the life of others as quite benign. When nobody's being hurt, it's consensual, no big deal. But then when you come face to face with this Messiah, your convictions change. No, that isn't okay. No, that's not right. I want to move in this direction. Our convictions and values begin to morph more towards a godly way. I begin thinking the thoughts like God, not because I think them, but I want to follow them. So is there evidence in your life? So if I were to ask you, who do you say that he is? Could you legitimately say, that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God? It's a huge question for you. Listen, you, you, there are many big questions in life. When I asked Carol to marry me, that was a huge question for me to give. It was a huge question for her to answer. I mean, think it through. I mean, if she would have said no, then lives that are our children would not be there. I mean, directions of life. My life would have gone in a different direction. It's a huge question. And she answered it. Thankfully, she answered it. Yes. But think about the implications. Who do you say that he is? It's an amazingly important question for you to wrestle with. Particularly if you're not a Christian. Please, don't don't be satisfied just with a simple pat answer. And if you claim Christ as your Messiah and Son of the living God, is there fruit in your life evidencing it? I know many of you the fruit, you would say, is not there. So can you say that? Okay, that's the first thing. Okay, second aspect of his church isn't just confessing Jesus as a Messiah, but the church has a rejoicing over the radical nature of God's grace. Look with me at verse 17. In verse 17, Jesus answered him, can you not hear the excitement in Jesus' voice when he says, blessed or happy are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. Do you see what he's saying? A mark of the church is we rejoice over the radical grace of God. right? So Jesus is saying, you ought to be super happy. Why? Because this knowledge that you've just evidenced was given to you. It was revealed to you. That Peter, in no way, he didn't discern it, he didn't discover it. He, it wasn't his intellect, it wasn't his intuition, it wasn't his investigation. God opened his eyes to the truth of the Messiah. Think about it for a minute. 
I mean, there are a lot of other people that were walking around Jesus. You can imagine Jesus as a miracle man was just a magnet for all kinds of people. They're hearing this teaching. They're seeing the miracles. They're seeing the feedings. They're seeing the people being delivered from demons and cleansed from leprosy. But they didn't recognize him. They saw the same thing, but they didn't recognize him. God opened Peter's eyes to it. Isn't it amazing that God doesn't just tell us in Scripture what we're supposed to do as Christians, but he tells us how we become Christians? He speaks to the issue of how people are actually changed. He has to open our eyes. It's not like this. I want to make sure you understand. The way revelation works isn't as if God just beams in something into you. God opens your eyes to what is already there. Do you remember John the Baptist said, asked his disciples to go to Jesus and said, hey, are you the one? And so what did Jesus say to the disciples? He said, go back and tell John what you see. The lame walk and the dead are raised and the blind see and, and the deaf hear. So go back and tell him. Well, now, if Jesus is referencing these actions, then where's the revelation fit in? Well, the revelation of God doesn't come outside of the acts of Christ. So what we do is we see the acts of Christ and God opens our eyes. That's why we preach the gospel. How can they believe unless they hear? So the revelation of God works with what is reality. And God opens Peter's eyes to what he had seen. And now he understands it. But it's the gift of God. God does that. And this isn't the only spot in the scriptures that speak to God receiving the unilateral glory for opening our eyes to the Son. He's already said it. We've already studied it. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. He has hidden them and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Folks, we may argue and wrestle with election, and, and there's, there's a place for that. But at the end of the day, you just got to stop and you just got to worship God. It was his gracious will. But we see this in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or listen to Paul in Galatians 1, 15. When he had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's what I've done. That's what I'm doing right now. He revealed his son to me, and I'm now preaching Christ crucified to you. Or in 2 Corinthians 4, God said, let light shine out of darkness. God has shown into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So folks, there's so much here to just rejoice over. First, first of all, I look at Peter having his eyes open. I'm so thankful it was Peter out of the twelve that had his eyes open. I mean, the, all their eyes were open, ultimately. But here, in this example, it was Peter. Why? Because Peter's really a poster child for, for encouragement to us. Why? Because he's a failure. He fails time and time and time again, doesn't he? I mean, he fails in the boat when they're in the sea and the storm's coming. He's saying, hey, don't you care that we're perishing here? A fisherman not even trusting. And Jesus gets up and calms the sea. And then next time, they're in the boat, the storm's going on, and Jesus is walking along the sea, and Peter says, command me to come out to you. And he says, come. And so he comes, he begins sinking. Or, or, or Peter begins to make this bold affirmation of, I'll never deny you at the Last Supper. And Jesus said, oh, you'll deny me before the rooster crows. Three times you're going to deny me. Or, or, or Peter was told, along with the other apostles, to go to Galilee after he died. They didn't. They didn't believe he would rise again. Peter goes back to fishing after he dies. 
I mean, Peter, failure, failure, failure. He has a lot to be embarrassed over. And yet notice that God takes such mercy on him to open his eyes. God chose to reveal Peter, not because of anything he had done, but because God is unfathomably merciful. And this is the message for us, that when you think about this, look at the happiness of Jesus. Blessed are you. Are you blessed? If you're a Christian and you affirm that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and you see the fruit being born in your life over such an affirmation, I mean, are you not happy? Are you not thankful? Does it not lead you to this depth of humility? I mean, consider us as a church. So all, the hundreds of us, and we're all overwhelmed with God saving us. I mean, can you imagine the, the, just the fruit born from just the simple humility of that? and the gratefulness and the satisfaction that nobody would stand arrogantly, nobody would stand proudly, nobody would act like a theological giant over anyone else. The ground is flat. We're all in need of God opening our eyes, drawing us so that we can see the sun in all of his glory. People look and hear and read about Jesus all the time and they don't see it, but you do. Why? Because he's gracious and he's worthy of all of your worship. He's worthy of my worship. I'm overwhelmed by his grace. Why me? Why am I up here? Carol can tell you who I was like 30 years ago. It's not pretty. And yet now, why? Well, God's gracious. And forever we will thank him. That's why he says in Colossians, he says, Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us the wisdom of God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Does it not elevate your affections? You and I do not deserve this knowledge. And he has given it to us freely by his grace. It elevates our affections. It leads me to be more intimate with the spirit of God who has done this work. I want to be bolder in the faith. Why? Because my call is to preach the gospel. God has to open their eyes to it. I can be bold about preaching the gospel. I don't have to persuade. It doesn't have to be contingent upon me. If I don't share the gospel and they die, it's not all contingent upon me. God has to open their eyes to the beauty of the gospel. And that's the kind of church we want to be. A church that centers on Christ as the Messiah and the living God, but secondly, a church that rejoices in the radical grace of God. I have a few more. Thirdly, a church that grows. In other words, the church that Christ builds is going to grow. Look at 18 with me. 18 is a huge verse. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, just those few words alone are some of the most hotly debated, contentious words, particularly among the Roman Catholic Church that would look at this text as a justification for papal infallibility and papal succession. That is from Peter all the way to Pope Francis. Let's take it apart real quick. What is the foundation upon which he's going to build the church? The foundation. Now, Martin Luther, I think in reaction to the Roman Catholic Church, said that Christ is the rock. Peter's a little rock. Christ is kind of the big rock. Although in Greek, he could have used a different word if he wanted to say that. And not only that, but also uh, you have the issue here of um, Jesus is the builder. He's not the rock. 
He's not the foundation. He's the builder. John Calvin made it a little bit different, and I, I like this a little bit more. It's the confession of Peter. In other words, Peter confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, Son of the living God. So the confession that Peter gave, that becomes the foundation of the church. Well, that makes a lot more sense to me. But it doesn't do justice to the pun that I think Jesus is getting at here. Look at what he says. He says, and I tell you, so he's speaking right to Peter now. I tell you, you are Peter. The word Peter Petros means rock. You are the rock. Then he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. It's the same word. There is a change in gender between Peter as rock and rock as rock. But, but it would lose the pun if there were two different things. I would submit to you that I think he is speaking to Peter. I think he said to Peter, upon you, I'm going to build this church. Now, before you think that I've moved to a Roman Catholic position, I think he's speaking about Peter in terms of his primacy among the apostles. Peter was the first to be called. He was the first to express Christ as the Messiah. He's going to be the first to preach to the Gentiles in Acts 2. He's going to be the first to preach to the Samaritans in chapter 8 of Acts. He's going to be the first to preach to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. I think what he's saying is, upon you, Peter, and the apostles, I will build my church. In other words, everything that we know about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, has come through the apostles. That the apostles are uniquely chosen by God to be the ones that the Spirit worked to produce the scriptures by which and through which we now know Jesus Christ. So I think he's saying upon the apostles. We see this clearly, more clearly, at least in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus being himself the cornerstone. Or in Revelation 21, 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. This is the city of God now in Revelation. 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles. So I would be, I would be submitting to you. It's going to be debated after my preaching. I have no doubt. But I would submit to you that he's speaking about the apostles themselves. That's how we know and through whom we've come to understand these things of Jesus. But that's not the main point. I wanted to deal with it thoroughly so at least you could have a broad understanding of it. The point is, it's Jesus, the master builder. We don't want to, you don't look at a house and just study at the foundation. You look at the builder of the house. You remark and you enjoy the builder. Jesus says, I will build my church. So the growth of the church is going to be predicated on Christ, Jesus, building his church. I will build my church. And you know, of course, if you've been here any length of time, that the church is not brick and mortar, but the church itself is the people. It's the called out ones. God calling us to Jesus out of the world of sin and shame, and now we are belonging to Jesus. That's why he says it's my church. It's Jesus' church. And we now belong to him, and he now belongs to us. So the church is going to be grown through him. Now, this is really important because probably the last 30 or 40 years, um, church growth experts, as they're called, uh, have been just, uh, there's no shortage of details and information and suggestions I have been given to how to grow the church. It goes from the way we um, arrange the furniture up here, the style of preaching that I embrace, the length of time that I preach, the type of music, the way we play music, the way we greet in the parking lot, the way we greet in the foyer. 
the size of the chairs, the amount of people that should be in the bed. All these things are measured and assessed, and if we tweak all these things, the church will grow. Well, I don't doubt for a minute that some of those things are important. No doubt about it. But the church doesn't grow on those things. The church grows because Christ has promised. There is the confidence that we have in our church growing both quantitatively and qualitatively is we look to Christ. This morning I was praying that he would build his church here, that he would build it in you, but that he would build it through you as well. And, and these words kind of come from 1 Corinthians chapter, um, chapter 3. says, Paul is arguing over the divisions in the church because they're following after various leaders. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They're only servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I love that. Paul keeps backing away from any credit that he could be given. I planted Apollos waters, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. But only God gives the growth. Can you imagine if we were a church that just looked to God every morning? Grow our church. Grow our church. We were just focused on God. Bring forth your glory through your church. Grow your church. Would that be amazing? I, I was told uh, when I was in seminary, <clears throat> I had a pastor that mentored me for a year and uh, just had some great one-liners that I just remember being so helpful to me. He said to me, he said, don't ever call the church you serve, don't ever refer to it as my church. <clears throat> don't ever say it's your church or it's my church. He goes, you did not die for that church. You did not bleed for that church. You will not come back in glory for that church. You're a steward. That's all you are. That gave me all kinds of freedom that, that if I advanced something before the elder board and they said, no, we don't think that's time yet. Okay, that's fine. I, I, mean, I mean, there is a sense of stewarding you as a church that allows me to have the freedom. God, you've got to do it. You have to change these people. I can't get in and I need to be changed myself, let alone try to get in and change you. There's great freedom there. Can you imagine if we just, all of us, had the same focus on God? God, grow your church. Grow us strongly. Okay, the fourth thing we see about the church is the victory, the triumphant nature of the church. Look at the second part of verse 18. It says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this is another much debated phrase. The gates of hell, what does it mean? Well, uh, hell is the word for Hades, and Hades is a place of the dead. And so he's saying that, that the gates of death will not uh, prevail. It will not overcome the church. So think about it for a minute. Death is what he's talking about. The abode of the dead. Will that not consume the church? We look at death as invincible. It has iron bars that can't be bent or broken. It has these thick wooden doors nobody can work against. I mean, the gates of death is like a tsunami coming, and it will take every one of us. And yet Jesus says, no, 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 it won't prevail against us. Jesus assures us that the church will survive. And Jesus can assure us because in Revelation 1, 17, he says this, he says, when I saw, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. This is so beautiful. He said, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He has the keys. Can't you hear him just jingling the keys? If he has the keys, he has the authority over death. He controls death. Nobody dies here. Nobody will die here until the days appointed to us will come to be, and that will be at his leadership. How did he do this? 
But we're going to see in more detail next week how he did this. He has the keys of death and Hades. He can assure us the promise is true that the gates of hell will not prevail because he entered death. He entered the gates of death and he threw the gates wide open by defeating death and leads a host of men and women that were once captive free. He has entered death. That's what you see in 16, 21, and 22, that he's broken the gates. He now, we, we, we don't fear anymore. I mean, when, when you, he's not saying, I, I want you to hear me clearly, he's not saying that the church doesn't struggle. He's saying that in his death, he put death to death. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that we don't struggle. Listen, right now, as Scott prayed, and I appreciate him praying this, the church has always gone through struggle and trial. I mean, the church has, since its beginning, has gone through oppression, opposition. I mean, think right now, the church in Syria. Think of the church in Raqqa, the home of ISIS. Think of the church in Iraq. Think of the church in Libya. Think of the church in Nigeria. Think of the church in North Korea. If you were a Christian there, there could be a great fear. And Jesus says, no, I've prevailed. In other words, there may be opposition, but I've overcome. Why? Because he has the keys of death. He's removed the fear of death. We're moving to a place of not fearing death. It's a glorious thing for me or for you to come to a saint on the dying days of his life. And I have. And the saints have said to me, I don't fear. I don't fear what's next. Hebrews 2, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. He's come to take that away from us. Now, we may die physically, but there's no fear in that. that that's just the... Death is the last step of discipleship until we see him, and when we see him, we'll be like him. You know, I read this blog regarding the 21 Coptic Christians who were murdered somewhere. They think the photograph was, was manipulated to make it look as if it was by the sea. So you saw the pictures, I'm sure, 21 executioners, 21 Coptic Christians in orange suits on their knees. You saw it, imagine. Well, this one man watched the video, and what he reports is this. He says, um, he says they were, uh, these young men were praying as they were being prepared for execution. And this is what he heard him shouting. They said, Oh, Lord Jesus, as their throats were being cut. Now, this is, is not a defeat. A defeat for the faith would have been they converted to Islam before that happened. That would be the defeat. This is a victory. Uh, these executioners just unwittingly brought them forth into the glory of God. There's no defeat here. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You don't need to worry about what you're going to say or how you, God will give us the grace at that time to endure what he brings before us as we Look to the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then the last part about this church. So we've seen the church is going to confess Christ as the Messiah. 
or confess Jesus as the Messiah, Son of the living God. The church is going to rejoice over this radical grace of God forever. The church is going to grow because Christ is going to grow it. And the church is going to be victorious even through death. And that's what we're going to find next week. The call of discipleship is a call to die. Why? Because in that is life. And Jesus is a perfect example. But last, the church is called to proclaim the gospel. That's how the gospel extends. Real quickly, look at me at 19. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, what does this mean? You know, I used to go around binding Satan in my charismatic days. I didn't know what I was doing. And I think a lot of times we look at these verses, and, and we really don't understand them. That was funny. I mean, it kind of was, if you would have seen me. Um, we've grown from that point. But, but the reality of it is, I, I look at these texts, and that's why I'm thankful for the preaching of the Word. I'm thankful that you value having men leading that are studying to explain these things. I'm, I'm thankful for learned men who teach me these things. We have Bible studies that men and women strive diligently to provide to help us understand these things. Some of us, we read this and we don't understand it. We're thinking, hey, just move on to the next verse. We don't want to do that. There is such truth here for us. So what does it mean? Well, the keys, I think, are just keys. The keys, you have them in the house, you lock the door, you keep people out, you open the door, you bring people in. I think it's speaking metaphorically to the presentation of the gospel, declaring that forgiveness is through Christ alone, and that when people humble themselves and repent of their sin and believe, they enter. They enter, the the door is open, they enter the kingdom. And, and, and when they refuse to believe and they say, no, I'm going to go my own way, then, then it remains locked and they're out of the kingdom. I think that's what he's speaking about. The church has a responsibility to preach the gospel. And it's throwing the door open or it's locking the door to those who refuse. You notice that they're not keys to the church. There's no ecclesial office being established here. It's keys to the kingdom. It's the proclamation of the gospel. And not only that, but this binding and loosing, I think we're going to get to that later in chapter 18. But I think in a way the church has a responsibility not just to preach the gospel, but to also practice church discipline on the church to keep it pure, our doctrine and our practice. This idea of binding and loosing is kind of used in the rabbinical literature over permitting and not permitting certain things. And the church has a responsibility to make sure her doctrine and her practice is pure. But we'll get to that later. So here you have this call for the church. Confess. We are need for us to be a, a God-centered, fruitful, faithful, enduring church. We confess Jesus as the Messiah, Son of the living God, we rejoice in the radical grace that is ours in Christ. We look to Christ to build his church and not any man-made efforts. Uh, fourthly, we are know that we'll be victorious and then ultimately that we want to preach the gospel. You and I have a responsibility to do that. Now, the cute, this verse 20 is a real twist, though. Then he strictly charges the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Uh, I'll explain more of this later, but, but I would simply say this. I think Jesus, after telling them, here's how the church is going to be built, but don't tell anybody. I don't think he's calling for silence. I think given at this stage of the ministry, they were much more focused on the militaristic and the political aspirations of a Messiah rather than what they're about to hear, which is that the Messiah from God will die. He'll die a hideous death for our sins, and the people would not have understood it. And so until that begins to happen, he's saying don't say anything about it yet because it's right around the corner. So let's just, let me, um, let's take a minute 
of silent reflection. And this time again is for you to speak to God, uh, confess your sin, or perhaps to seek God for grace. And then um, Ray is going to close us in just a minute.